0: So you've made it about 24 hours in, and uh, no casualties yet, from what I can see for uh, those of you for whom this is your first retreat, I just want to say that you'll you'll never, you'll never have to get through your first day of your first retreat again it's a, it's a passage it's a passage of sorts and I was just noticing coming over here before the last sitting, just that uh, you're starting to slow down. The, the energy is different than it was uh, last night as we were all arriving. And I really want to appreciate your practices. I want to appreciate all of the moments today when you've made the choice to come back to presence, even as you maybe were planning your escape route. as you, um, Well, as I sit here with you, I, I just really am glad for the wholesome force that is happening here. This is such important and necessary work, both individually and collectively, for our world. So I and we, the team, we appreciate your effort. And just to name the way to listen to a Dharma talk, and I'll be talking about the Dharma, the way things are, sharing with you some of what I have found to be helpful in my own practice. And uh, it's okay to really just let it flow through you. Usually with these talks, uh, what needs to stick will stick. And the rest falls away. So don't worry if you don't get every little detail. The talks are generally available online later. So I just invite you to continue in uh, this kind of embodied presence that we've been cultivating together. Coming on retreat is is interesting because we have ideas about how it's going to go. We're surrounded by these images of royal and uh, peaceful and dignified and beautiful-looking beings, these um, statues, these rupas, uh, sitting and standing and laying down. And, you know, it just sounds so lovely. And like, um, you know, radiance is sure to follow, you know, within 12 hours or so. And... um, And then, you know, you may have found today that you come to practice and the body kicks up stuff. Yeah. (laughs) The heart um, kicks up stuff. The mind does. You know, we, uh, we never get to know ahead of time how it's going to go coming on a retreat like this. That's part of the vulnerability of it. You know, I've been... I've been sitting retreats for twenty years, and very rarely do they go the way I think they might go. It's part of the practice in making ourselves available for nature to move through us, and we meet what we have been running from. And it's it's good to just pause with that and know that that. Uh, in meeting what we have been running from, we encounter the possibility of not having to spend our lives running. Because running can feel powerful and look productive, but it gets exhausting. It's it's tiring a mind that isn't at rest. It's tiring a body that only knows how to power through or collapse so when we meet what we've been running from we begin to know the possibility of, of um. what else is here to be known that which is not running that which is um, here that which we've been going too quickly to begin to pay attention to and I'm really talking about the kind of Presence and stillness, the capacity for joy and peace that live in each of our human hearts. So, you know, mindfulness, I actually looked it up because Howie mentioned it yesterday. Right now on Google, 39,800,000 little links come up when I Google the word mindfulness. And I'm not much of a techie, but that sounds like a lot to me. And, um, so I thought, what would it be like for another word like burrito? And I googled the word burrito, and it's 31,200,000. So people might be even more interested in mindfulness than burritos these days. <laughs> I saw a cartoon recently in the New Yorker. And it's a picture of what looks like a small meditation class or retreat, and somebody's sitting up front, and there's what looked like yogis. And um, you know the teacher's sitting like this, and all the yogis are sitting like this, looking like you know, kind of... The, image of a, you know, that perfect yogi, whatever that is, that a perfect yogi can be on the floor, can be in a chair, can be standing, sitting, walking. We're all perfect yogis. But the teacher is saying to the the students, and now I want you to send out peaceful, loving thoughts to all sentient beings on the planet who have exactly the same political, economic, and religious beliefs that you do. (laughs) Kind of like that, isn't it? (laughs) It's kind of like that. So um, I was remembering my own first retreat, and I remember seeing this flyer I'd, I'd been doing some meditating I'd been um, familiar with some compassion practice and somewhat familiar with mindfulness but I hadn't set a residential retreat and I was at my local bookstore at home on Main Street in Durango and there was this blue flyer um, of a retreat being offered by the Durango Dharma Center and I thought well I think I'd like to do that because it, it seemed from the flyer like they had something figured out that I didn't have figured out and um I went there, and I remember going up the stairs to my room. It was held in this rustic retreat center, and we, had, we would have three bunk beds in each room. And there was a schedule posted. <laughs> and it was, you know, sit, walk, sit, walk, sit, walk, sit, walk. And I looked at that, and I just thought, there's, there's absolutely no way. I mean, this is crazy. You know, I didn't understand that it would be so much sitting and walking. And, and they'd said to bring a pillow to sit on. And so I brought my pillow from my bed and um, (laughs) sat there in agony, actually, for a number of days. I I didn't have the balance of effort to know when to back off and when to go to a chair. I just muscled it through, tears, you know, stabbing in the shoulder. And um, I finished the retreat, and I vowed that I would absolutely never do that again to myself, and um, I made it home. I only lived like half an hour from the retreat center. I was living out in the woods, and um, I remember drawing a bath and sitting in the bathtub just being so glad that was over. And not that long after that time, what popped into my mind was, huh, I wonder if I could do that again. And it, it surprised me. And um, what had happened is that something had been touched very deeply inside of me. There was a sense of, although the practice was very difficult for me, I really resonated with what the teachers were saying. It made sense to me, and I felt like they were articulating something that I'd known in my bones for a really long time, but I'd never heard anybody put it into words. And... Um, And what's interesting now is that so many of my, two things, so many of my happiest moments actually happen on retreat because there's just this beauty that comes from simplifying daily life. And I noticed that so many of my other happiest moments are a direct result from my my Dharma practice, including retreat practice. So I just want to say that I know how it is to suffer, honestly, and to struggle internally with how to do this and to try to um, have really the courage and dedication it takes to know another way of living, to know a deeper way of living. And it's helpful to to remember what brought you here. Because it wasn't really the Spirit Rock website that brought you here. And just you take a moment. You can close your eyes if you want. You can keep them open and just name for yourself why are you here? Really, it might have something to do with you know the invitation. curiosity or looking for a way to deal with something going on in your body or a relationship in your life or a loss. It's important to know why we're here, really, because there's this longing that brought each of us here on some level. We share this uh, desire to be happy and we share a basic goodness of heart that makes uh, that kind of happiness possible. The great teacher Suzuki Roshi speaks about this as the heart's innermost request. And I I just love that, to be connected to your heart's innermost request because that's part of what brought you here and to have the um, willingness to keep following that, keep making room for that, being, being available to listen to that. The... This woman named Lal Dead, who is a 14th century saint and mystic poet, and she lived in what is now Kashmir. This is translated by Jane Hirschfield. She says, I was passionate, filled with longing. I searched far and wide, but the day the truth found me, I was at home. Right here right here, the day the truth found me. I was at home. So we've been talking and practicing mindfulness and and how he talked about Ajahn Brahm's um, great, the way he's coined the term, kindfulness. So mindfulness, kindfulness, I wish it had gotten translated as heart mindfulness because we hear the word mind and we often think right here that it's about thinking. But mindfulness is really has to do with a much fuller experience of life than where thinking will ever, will ever lead us. And mindfulness, this capacity to just know what's happening as it's happening, the capacity to bear witness We are learning how to bear witness because so much of what happens is completely out of our control. And we will um, wrap ourselves up into pretzels to try to not um, know that directly sometimes. You know, what is up to us is in large part how we meet what life brings our way. And we can bear witness to just about anything. We can bear witness to great joy, deep celebration, and show up for it. We can bear witness to heartbreak, to a feeling like the body's betrayed you, and show up for it. Mindfulness knows how to bear witness. And bearing witness is being present in a way that is connected to what's happening, non-interfering, Kind. So with mindfulness, we are, um, it's very closely related to wisdom. Mindfulness leads to wisdom. We're not doing this just to become more chill or lower blood pressure. That may happen. That's great. But mindfulness, paying attention in this way, leads to the wisdom that comes from knowing your direct experience. What else is there to know, really? So mindfulness is this um, way of being that isn't in opposition, it's not opposing, it's not favoring. It's not suppressing, it's not rejecting. Do you, do you feel the quality of rest that lies right there, in the cent- right there in the center? What it would be like to not have to be favoring or opposing experience, but to be meeting it. Awareness can do that. Awareness can do that. The the Abhidhamma, this uh, text that came some years after the Buddha was alive, it's an interesting text. I'm actually not much of a Buddhist scholar, just a teeny bit. But um, in the Abhidhamma, they talk about different characteristics and functions and manifestations of different heart-mind qualities. And the salient characteristic of mindfulness is non-superficiality. Non-superficiality. And I love that because life is full (laughs) of superficiality. And most of the yogis I meet on retreats in some way are coming to discover a deeper way of living. A more meaningful way of living. And so mindfulness is some of what helps our understanding seep down into something that's more real than what all of the cultural messages are. And presence, the the quality of presence, helps to dissolve the cultural messages we're given that aren't true to who we really are. The function, the function of mindfulness, is the absence of confusion, which I think of as a kind of clarity. I... um, lack of delusion, the presence of wisdom, not being confused, and the manifestation of mindfulness in this text is a state of being turned toward the object. So that's just facing, bearing witness, not running after, not holding, holding it away, being turned toward the object. So in real life, this means you, know, you come, you're doing walking meditation. You can't stop thinking about, you know, something you have planned for when you get home. You know, the mind's going crazy over it. And you keep turning toward the next step. You keep turning toward the experience of seeing the all the shades and textures of the green, turning toward the object. Or or if you are um, have had the experience on this retreat where there's You know, some sort of repetitive thought train that goes over and over and over in cycles. And you know that it's loaded for you in some way or it wouldn't keep happening. Turning toward the object is turning toward, I'm just going to sense, oh right, every time this thought train comes, somehow I'm feeling not quite good enough. Somehow I'm feeling angry, and I don't want to admit that I'm angry. So we turn toward what's really here, opening to that. This capacity of uh, this um this state of bearing witness and knowing what's happening. I I um, like many of you, I, I woke up this past Sunday morning it was just I mean, I don't even know. I was I was so moved by the Orlando shooting and um just the, the reality of some of what happens in this world, you know, some of the homophobia the hatred, the terror that happens in this world. And knowing that each human being in our own hearts, carry we carry the seeds for incredible beauty and love. We also carry the seeds for great destruction. Every human has the seeds for both. And really what seeds we water, um, the seeds we nourish, um, become an expression in our lives. And I don't think there could be a more important time in human history or a more important time as creatures of this amazing planet that is you know, in, in great crisis, great crisis, for us to um, really understand that the change we want to see in the world is not going to change from, ultimately it's not going to change from technology, or from treaties or laws, really, the change we want to see in the world will happen in large part by a shift in human consciousness. Because all this stuff, in large part—not completely, but in large part—comes from human consciousness. You know, our our economies, our laws, all of this, all of this, um, comes from the human heart. So this. This capacity, and the work we 're doing here is um, it makes a difference in ways that we may not even know. Have you ever had those experiences of where you know you 're connected in, in in ways that um, you know you find out with somebody later on the ways that you 're connected you didn 't even realize so this this great mystery and I wanted to share I i reading this wonderful book by Zenju Earthlin Manuel called The Way of Tenderness. It's a great book, Awakening Through Race, Sexuality, and Gender, and she uh, talks about fear, and I just want to share some of her words about fear with you, because fear is something that the Buddha encountered. How many of you, just out of curiosity, how many of you today worked with some measure of fear as part of your, of your practice? And if you'll keep your hand up for just a second, just, just look around the room. You know, there's a lot of us who worked with fear on some level as part of your practice today. You can put your hands down. So she says, she says, most of us are unaware of the extent of fear that we carry. Fear builds upon itself, or more precisely, fear creates more fear. As a result, our accumulated fear becomes a deep-seated terror that is challenging to uproot. If we view fear as terror, as a pervasive human condition, rather than bound to singular events and incidents, we're more likely to feel the urgency of attending to it. We constantly speak of terrorism in the world, but we don't necessarily acknowledge the terror that has invaded our inner worlds. Instead, we present ourselves as brave or courageous. And she goes on to say, how can we continue to release terror? Surely it doesn't work to try to unload the entire mass of fear inside at once. We can release terror moment by moment, bit by bit. In meditation, we learn to cultivate and stretch the moments of being unencumbered. The places of non suffering. We can experience the state of non suffering with each breath, moment by moment, breathing in and breathing out. In meditation, we feel the fear without having to do anything about it in the moment. We simply breathe. The terror within is being attended to in a gentle way. There is no past or future. We are not harming or being harmed. There may be tears or trembling. We are alive. So what we're doing is is so, so important, and it happens breath by breath, moment by moment. Love lives in the present moment. Joy lives in the present moment. And the Buddha, I think about the Buddha. Actually, I do. I recollect on the Buddha a fair bit. And, um, you know, he left his home, he left his palace, his life of huge luxury, tons of sense pleasure. When he was 29 years old, he walked out because he could see how fragile actually his happiness was if it depended on that. And he'd been inspired by some. Um, messengers like sickness and old age and death and a person devoted to spiritual life. And he spent um, six years working with different teachers, trying different spiritual practices as Howie talked about this morning. He really took things to the extreme, you know, like self-mortification practices, all this stuff. But he set out to free his heart in the way that you have set out to free your heart. But he had no map. You know, He didn't have somebody saying, here are the four foundations of mindfulness, and you know, here are the heart qualities, and here's this neuroscience, by the way, so if you doubt if it works, look at the science, it works. There was none of that. You know, he had worked with teachers, but he got as realized as all of his teachers were pretty quickly. And so he, um, you know, he, he mapped this out for us, and it's, it's a beautiful thing to take that in. That that there is a path, there is a um, technology and, and an art of how to wake up, and so the Buddha did it just like we just like we're doing it. You know, he sat, and he got visited by what he'd been running from, and he brought presence to body, he brought presence to the heart and the mind, and he um, was determined. He was determined that it was possible to live in a deeper and freer way. So there's just something about about that whether you take it as a factual story of a person or whether you take it as an archetype, you know, in so many different cultures and different ways of being, there's this this sort of journey that we go on where there's a call to leave what's familiar and go on a journey and on the journey we encounter things that we don't encounter in everyday life. We encounter our challenges, we encounter maybe non-ordinary realities and we come back with a special gift of some sort, a serum, an understanding. by the great poet Rumi, really just speaks to the simplicity of the actual practice called this we have now. This we have now is not imagination. This is not grief or joy, not a judging state or an elation or sadness. Those come and go. This is the presence that doesn't this is the presence that doesn't we're making room for this presence that's available right here always and over and over again we talk about how are you how are you being in relationship to your experience mindfulness is a new way of being in relationship to your experience. There's this word viveka, which means a kind of um, detachment. N- not, a, not, not like with a heart that doesn't care, but just a, a, a um, unhooking, unhooking, so even as compelling as the stories are, as compelling as following that trail that tells you, you know, that you're not good enough is, Viveka's quality of, of stepping back into the present moment of, of non-involvement with all the mental chit-chat so that we can discover something else, so that we can discover something more. There's a great uh, primate biologist named George George Shaler who was studying gorillas in Af- in Africa. He um was he was the mentor of Diane Fossey. You might have seen the movie uh, Gorillas in the Mist, that great movie about Diane Fossey. He was her her mentor, and he made this presentation at a conference talking about the great apes and their, the patterns in their families. And he spoke about the relationships between the young gorillas and their aunts and uncles. And he spoke in detail about what the sibling relationships were between these amazing creatures. He he talked about the role of the silverback male. And as he was presenting at this conference, it was clear that he was presenting with a kind of detail and understanding that had not been known before about these creatures. And so one of the professors at the conference raised their hand and said, You know, how did you get such detailed information when you went in to study these creatures in the wild? And his answer was very simple. He said, I didn't carry a gun. So for all these years, biologists had been going in to study these incredible creatures armed, (laughs) carrying a gun. And you can imagine how it might have felt to these sensitive, wild, connected beings, you know, that, that somebody's trying to study them ready to shoot them if they need to you know it's not exactly um an invitation and um the the biologists who had gone in there were afraid of the gorillas and they maybe didn't know what the guns were but they could tell that um that they're that these creatures were were afraid and dangerous and the impact of this man going in without any guns was that um he was unencumbered. He could move slowly. He could move deliberately, and he could... The gorillas sensed his degree of openness. They sensed his care. They sensed his desire to know them. And eventually, he they came, he, he came to, not, to not pose a threat to these creatures. And it was, it was the attitude with which he entered their environment, that allowed him to really understand their relationships, understand how they work, that allowed for real relationship to happen. And obviously I'm sharing this story just as a metaphor, as a metaphor for us. You know, how are you meeting yourself? Is it possible to put down the sword and shield and open to to your experience to open in non contention? That's a question you can ask yourself, you know, when you're in a moment of of struggle, you know, is it possible is it possible to even meet contention? To even meet this with non contention? Is it possible to meet this with with a moment of non contention? How many of you know the um, the the RAIN instruction that's given com- commonly in, a few of you do, in Vipassana circles? I'm going to share it with, with the whole group. I don't think we've talked about that yet. So uh, Michelle McDonald, very skilled Vipassana teacher, came up with this great uh, acronym, RAIN, R-A-I-N. And this is one way to... Um, meet your experience with kindness and wisdom in a way that allows things to soften. And the R stands for, I'll talk about each of these, but the R stands for uh, recognize and the A stands for allow and the I stands for investigate and the N can be um, understood in different ways, but I, I like to understand it as, as natural. So, R means, you know, you recognize what's happening. If there's a feeling of um, just feeling stuck or feeling caught up, caught up in some way, whether it's in your formal practice here or your life at home, just to to recognize, okay, I'm caught. Suffering is happening. I'm favoring or opposing. I want to get the heck out of here just to recognize what's happening. And the A so the quality of um of mindfulness and of care in allowing you know is it is it possible just to allow this to be what it is because we start to feel you know stuck or or or're um, stuck in some commentary about how it 's going, and then sometimes we can just add more and more layers of tension trying to get unstuck it 's like if you 're caught in quick stand you 're not supposed to start um, making quick, fast movements. So um, it's the same as true in, in our Dharma practice. Is it possible to just allow? Fear is like this. Joy is like this. Being hungry is like this. Doubting why I should be here is like this. To just allow and to investigate to get to know What's happening in a, in a deeper way? What's happening in the body? You know, um, a collected mind has a very different feel in the body than a doubting mind. What's happening in the body? Because we can really be with moments of sensation. And N, you know, you can, you can understand it as non-identifier. You can understand N as just being to know that this is nature, this is nature passing through you. In any given moment, you know if things could be otherwise, they would be otherwise. How is it to know that this is nature? It's not your fault. You don't actually own it. Like all of nature, whatever is happening is going to change. It's nature. it's really our experience, is, is not so different than, as Howie has said, than the mist that comes and goes the sun that shines the clouds that come and go that human experience is very much like that but we make it concrete you know it's a moment of a mist and we take up an identity that i'm a sad person and that's who i am when when, when if you really look deeply there may have been some few moments where that was known but it doesn't mean that you are a particular type of person so recognize allow investigate And know that this is nature happening. Are you with me? Is this making sense? It's been a long day, huh? It's been a long day. Hmm. A few more pieces I want to share with you. It's, there's so many different ways of knowing. Uh, meditation opens us to different ways of knowing. And we, um, in, this, in this dominant culture, in this country, um, the brain sense is really elevated. You know, we're, we're taught to, and when I say we, I'm, I guess I should say I have been, because it might not be like that for you. But I've been taught to really um, the power of thinking mind. and Thinking mind is pretty important. You wouldn't be here without thinking mind in many ways. It's, it's valuable. We can use it wisely. Um, but the brain sense really knows you know, um, things like learning categories. The brain sense knows that today is Friday and that uh, you're here in the meditation hall. The brain sense knows all that stuff. The brain sense is hearing the RAIN and making sense of that. And then there's the, the heart sense, which many of you may have less training in. I know in my upbringing and in my education, the heart sense was virtually completely untrained. And the heart sense has to do with um, knowing experience in direct and specific detail. Like, what is the mood in the room? We know that, we know that with here. Like... Um, when you smell a certain smell and it makes you feel a certain way. You don't think to make that happen. You, you know it directly. You um, you know it through the heart. And so the heart sense is part of what helps us to recover the sensitivity that is, um, that is really such a beautiful part of who we are, a beautiful part of our humanity. And this quality of receptivity, this quality of... Uh, Listening, learning to have confidence in listening to experience, receiving experience, can be really, really helpful. And it's cultivating a different way of knowing that's not mainstream. Ajahn Amaro, very great practitioner and very great teacher who uh, was here for the opening of the community hall, just down the just down the road, maybe some of you were there. He says the best way to deal with excessive thinking is to just listen to it. to listen to the mind. Listening is much more effective than trying to stop thought or cut it off. So he's like a really great teacher who has an enormous amount of understanding. And basically what he's saying right there, is that thinking doesn't need to be a big problem. That you don't need to battle the thinking mind. You can listen to the thinking mind. Like, a, like the next note of a song waiting to be sung. Just knowing thinking mind. This um, wisdom of, of, of listening and practicing just... Uh, being with our experience rather than rearranging our experience. Mother Teresa was once asked about her prayer life. And, you know, I, I just appreciate, without wanting to idealize Mother Teresa, you know, she had a pretty amazing heart. She, she was a great being who uh, offered tremendous devotion, so much service, all rooted in spiritual life a different practice, but rooted in spiritual life. And she, she was once asked about her prayer life. And the interviewer said, when you pray, what do you say to God? Mother Teresa replied, I don't talk. I simply listen. And the interviewer thought he understood what she'd said. And he said, oh, then, then what is it that God says to you when you pray? Mother Teresa replied, he also doesn't talk. <laughs> He simply listens. (laughs) And then there was this long silence with interviewers seeming a little bit confused and not knowing what to ask next. And finally, she breaks the silence and she says, if you can't understand the meaning of what I've just said, I'm sorry, but there's no way I can explain it to you. (laughs) Meditation's a little little like that. That that listening, the heart sense begins to... um, connect us with the mystery that we are part of the mystery that is much larger than um, than thinking mind but you have to practice <laughs> that's kind of the the paradox a little bit here right i'm talking about receptivity i'm talking about resting Talking about mindfulness and listening. And yet we're saying, don't come to the sits late, stay till the end. Um, You know, we we noticed that it was a much smaller group for some of the morning sittings, which is, you know, not a surprise, but, you know, we we just have two full days here together. We have two full days here together. And there's a, a saying that, You know, enlightenment is an accident. You can't will enlightenment. Enlightenment happens when certain conditions are ripe. But that being on retreat makes us accident prone. (laughs) May you have an enlightenment accident, one where there's no harm involved. And um, because we are um, going against the grain we're swimming upstream was what the buddha said we are swimming upstream practicing non-greed not a hatred non-contention in a um, in this world in this country and um, it takes an effort and it's important that the effort is balanced if you're practicing and you find that your brows and eyes are tight and you're getting a headache you might be over efforting Because effort is something very different. The kind of effort I'm talking about is different than striving, and it's different than tension. The effort that will help you in this practice is an effort that is in service to continuity. So it's not the effort so much to achieve something. Like, Please don't come in and make every effort possible to have a calm sitting, because you're going to get disappointed and you're not really practicing mindfulness, you're practicing trying to have a calm sitting. Mm-hmm. If you come in, and you make an effort toward continuity, which means being um, having as many moments, it's not even, we don't have moments, it's not even like that, but making an effort to um, be present for as many moments as possible, that's wise effort. And you can totally relax, because it's in service to continuity. Moment by moment by moment. And continuity is really that that's where life happens, is in the moment. So that the right effort, the quality of wise effort, it's not too tight, it's not too relaxed, but it is um, unwavering in every moment. So it's not the effort of a tight fist. It's like if you actually, if you can just put your two hands together and let your palms touch. You, do you notice how, how easy it is to feel the sensations there? It's just the sensations right there. You don't have to try to feel a sensation. That's kind of the quality of effort we're looking for, Not not this, this. So you know if you're sitting and you're not sure if you're under or over efforting, just put your hands together for a moment. Let yourself, let that be a reminder of, oh right, it's, it's, it's this easy and it is continuous. I can say with total confidence in my own practice that, um, you know, it's kind of like a, you keep using these metaphors, but you know it takes a lot of power for a rocket ship to take off out of the atmosphere and go into space. It takes enormous power, but once the rocket goes into space, the engines aren't running in the same way, if at all. I don't, I don't think they're actually running at all. But it, there's, it takes some lift-off power to counter the gravitational force of this atmosphere, and it takes some lift-off power to counter our delusion. You know, um, be honest with yourself about just how you're spending your time here. It's so precious. In my own practice, I've been very... Um, devoted in different ways with this quality of effort and I'm really not sorry for it. One of my early retreats, not the not the one I told you about, but a, another retreat, I went in and I was really I was really tired. I was putting myself through college. I was working my tail off and and before I say this, I want to be really clear that there is absolutely a place to rest. <laughs> Many pe- people come on retreat and they actually do need sleep. So if you slept, it's okay. Sometimes I tell yogis, go take a nap. But we can often tell ourselves, Oh, I'm just gonna go go to sleep and it's self-compassionate, but it's not about self-compassion. It's it's about something else. And I went in and I said to this teacher, I'm so tired, I just, you know, don't want to do this. And I got a I got a really good instruction from him that I'll share with you. And he said to me that the remedy for exhaustion is not the kind of exhaustion I was having is not rest, it's wholeheartedness. That wasn't what I wanted to hear. And um, he wasn't talking about being out of sync with what was true in my body and mind. But he was talking about um, the way I was holding my heart back. And so I think of that, you know, the, the remedy for exhaustion being wholeheartedness you can be wholeheartedly exhausted in presence no problem there's room for that or wholeheartedly ecstatic in presence whatever it looks like but um this this effort that i'm about to share is not necessarily what i'm recommending but just just naming some of these classical stories there's milarepa was a really great tibetan buddhist yogi practitioner teacher and um He had the student who grew to be the same, um, Gampopa. And one day, Milarepa said to Gampopa, his student, he said, you've received all I have to teach you. You know, you've received the entire transmission and um, I've given you the teachings. He said, I've given you the teachings as if pouring water from one vase into another and only one instruction remains that I haven't taught you and it's, it's the secret teaching. And so he accompanied Gampopa to, to a river and they were about to part and Gampopa made all of his prostrations and started to cross. But Milarepa called him back and said, Milarepa, you're a really good disciple so I'm going to give you the last teaching. And um, Gampopa prostrated nine more times and waited for the instructions, like waiting for this moment of this pith secret teaching. And, um, and uh, Milarepa proceeded to turn around and pull up his robe and bend over, to show Gampopa his bottom. And um, he said, "Gampopa, do you see?" And Gampopa said, "Yeah." It's kind of kind of weird. And he said, "No, do you really see?" And um, he wasn't sure what he was supposed to be seeing. But um, Milarepa had calluses. He had calluses on his buttocks, and they looked as though they were they were kind of half flesh and half stone because he'd spent so much of his life actually sitting and practicing and. What Milarepa says to his student is the secret teaching, the last teaching is, you see, this is how I reached enlightenment, sitting and meditating. If you want to reach it in this life, make the same effort. This is my final teaching. I have no more to add. I actually think it's good for us to remember this sort of thing, you know, because there's not an enlightenment app. The only way, I wish there was, let me know if you find out, but the only way to do it is, is thr- how the only way to wake up is w- awakening happens in the present moment. The only way to wake up is to show up now and look at how are you in relationship to what's here and to have enough faith and trust and confidence in whatever it was that brought you here to stay with it. Um, to stay with it. I'll end with a poem by Mary Oliver, who's just an amazing dharma and earth poet. She says, today I'm flying low, and I'm not saying a word. I'm letting all the voodoos of ambition sleep. The world goes on as it must, the bees in the garden rumbling a little, the fish leaping, the gnats getting eaten, and so forth. But I'm taking the day off. Quiet as a feather, I hardly move, though really I'm traveling a terrific distance. Stillness, one of the doors into the temple. Let's just sit for a moment. Thank you for your practices, and uh, the nine o'clock sitting will be uh, a good one because there will be some instruction for loving kindness or metta practice, which in this whole theme of wise effort and um, relationship to our experience, there's no better medicine than a kind heart. So we hope to see you at that sitting. Enjoy your walking.